thank you for joining us for this second week of our Hope Live series that we're calling Table Talk, where, as Jeff said last week, we're going to gather around a table and we're going to have some conversations as a community about some of the challenges and, uh, that we're facing and lessons that we're learning as we learn to extend compassion and justice, especially um, to the most marginalized among us. You can see that I'm joined this morning by Annie Froze, who is the director of our homeless shelter in our St. Catharines location. Uh, you have worked at the shelter for, what, 12 14 years? 14 years. 14 years you've worked at the shelter. The shelter's only 16 years old. Yep. And you've been the director for? Seven Seven years. years. Yeah. So Annie has seen it all. She's experienced it all. She's done it all. And now she leads it all. And um, we're just hoping that Annie can help bring us into the conversation about some of the things that we've been learning in the shelter over the course of the pandemic. Not because we imagine that a lot of us are super interested in shelter policy, though I hope that in all of our locations, we are being intentional about getting involved in friendships that make a difference, especially with the marginalized among us. Um, but I think this conversation, both in the lessons, the challenges that have been faced and the lessons that we've been learning, have opportunities to stretch us in the way that we live in relationship with people in our lives who we love that are making decisions that might be different than the decisions we would want for them. Um, in my experience growing up, the classic version of this conversation is, the question is, would you drive your best friend to her abortion, right? She's my best friend and I love her, uh, but I maybe am not supportive of the decision, how do I love best in that situation, right? That's how people used to ask it, but if you think about it, there's lots of scenarios. Many of us, um, are not excited about the fact that marijuana is now a legalized recreational drug in Canada, and many of us use marijuana as a recreational legalized drug in Canada. How do we love people when they're making different decisions than what we would want for them? Um, that's kind of the question that we're leaning into. The, a lot of us believe in a traditional Christian sexual ethic that reserves sex for marriage, and a lot of us don't live by that ethic. And how do we love people who are making different decisions? than the ones we would want. And that's what we're talking about this morning and using what's been gone on in the shelter for the last year and a half as a springboard for that. So Annie, why don't you tell us uh, what has it been like to <laughs> run and work in the shelter over the course of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think to say that it's been a season, a long season of change would probably be an understatement. Um, the shelter has experienced shifts probably in three uh, kind of major themes over the last 20 months. The first being the pandemic. You you mentioned that the pandemic has been uh, challenging in various ways and not all of our experiences have looked the same, but it's been hard for everybody in a whole bunch of different, uh, different ways. It's required us to pivot. Uh, for us in the shelter, a health crisis for vulnerable people has been a unique circumstance that has been, I would say, uh, escalated by the fact that congregate living um, across the board, most most specifically probably in long-term care, was hit hard. Yeah. Um, but concurrent with that, we also felt this, incre this incredible loss of community and this increase in isolation that came from some of our pivots in response to the pandemic. So we changed the way we did our drop-in availability. We changed the way we did community meals. We changed the way we did programming and what was available for people. In fact, the first decision that we made once COVID hit was to cancel our annual Muskoka retreat, mm -hmm. uh, which just is the accumulation of all of the community. It is a highlight for us. And we had been doing it for 13 years. 
we canceled and subsequently last year canceled for a second time. And our people were experiencing incre incredible amounts of isolation and loneliness. The third and exasperated by the first two really has been the impact that the opioid crisis has had on our community and watching that on the front line and trying to get a sense even for um, for a real metric around that number, we think a conservative number would be that we've lost 40 people. People not just in our community, not in our city or not in our region, but people that we know and love. Um, this crowd has been hit really hard yeah. by that. And those have really required us to determine to do things different, to meet the need differently. Yeah, yeah. So what are some of the changes that you've had to make in the way the shelter operates to meet that incredibly dire need? So the most specific change, really, and the one that we're even going to work into our conversation this morning, really has been about an embracing of harm reduction. And that's maybe more clinical language. Probably the best way to actually articulate that is we have decided to embrace radical acceptance for people, to, to endeavor to even move away from the way that we've done things in the past to most, the, to most accurately meet people exactly where they're at and to aim to be community and a safe place for people, regardless of the place that they're in. Yeah. So what, what is that meant? Like you, you say like we, we've changed things to meet people right where they're at. What does that look like specifically, like yeah. tangible changes? So a couple of changes. I mean, one of the things that it means is that there used to be a requirement for admission and an ongoing accountability around our shelter community that you had to abstain from various substances, et cetera. You had to be, um, you had to be sober mm -hmm. to be at the shelter. Um, and to, in addition to staying at the shelter, but to come for meals or to come for programs, you, you couldn't do that if you were under the influence. Um, and what we've come to learn through these, uh, changes in the shelter is that that disqualifies the, mm. the people who need us the most. So mm. that has been a massive shift. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That instead, so that instead of saying, look, if you use, you're out, if you're, if you're not sober, you can't come. You've actually said you can, and in fact, um, people even end up using in and around our property sometimes. Yep, and we encourage people to not use on our property, but certainly to be around our property, and it means that people who are on site with us are often under the influence. Because, but what it allows you to do is to make sure that they are safe. If you can't not use, we're going to make sure that you're at least safe. Right. right. So essentially that is, I mean, and again, harm reduction is somewhat clinical language, but what we're talking about is prioritizing safety and prioritizing right. radical acceptance for people over the rules that would have people excluded yeah. from accessing services with us. Yeah. When I hear you talk about that, um, there's a, the verse that comes to my mind because we're interested in, like you were using clinical language of harm reduction, we're interested in learning best clinical practices and doing things that research has shown most benefits people who struggle with addiction and so on. But we want to do those things that also reflect who Jesus is. Absolutely. Right? But the verse that came to mind is in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. I'll just read it. It says, do you have contempt for the riches of God's generosity, tolerance, and patience? Don't you realize that God's kindness is supposed to lead you to change your heart and life? Like Paul's talking about 
God's posture towards people for whom God wants to see a change of heart in life. People who are not behaving in the way that God would want them to behave. People who aren't experiencing the fullness of the life of Jesus. And the question Paul's asking is, how does God relate to people in whom he wants to see a change? And the three words that get used are kindness, which generally just means kindness, benevolence, like loving, generosity. That's always God's posture is kindness. The second word is tolerance. And the word tolerance, the idea behind it is kind of, I'm going to embrace or receive someone in relationship and look past the behaviors that are bothersome to me. I'm going, to, I'm going to tolerate the ways this person isn't being the one I wish they would be um, in order to embrace them in relationship. And then the third word is patience. Literally translated, it means long-suffering or prolonged suffering. I will be willing to take on the pain of living in relationship with somebody who is willing or who is not making the choices I wish they'd be making so that I can demonstrate kindness and generous love towards them. That's, those are the words that describe how God behaves towards us when God wants to see a change in our heart and lives. So and what I hear you saying is, those are the values that are now, we're thinking through, what does that look like as we live out those values in relationship with people in our shelter community, even if they are using it, we wish they weren't. Absolutely, and I think, because what God endeavors is relationship with us, what we're endeavoring is relationship with people. Yes. And we don't get that if we exclude people based on the things that uh, that we don't agree with. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, you and I have talked enough for me to know this hasn't been um, easy on the shelter. And so what we did is we asked uh, two shelter staff members, Kyle and Sylvia, to sit down and talk about this shift that the shelters experience and some of the challenges inherent in it. And so take a listen to what they had to say. My name is Sylvia Antonitis and I've been working at the shelter for almost two years, really since COVID started. My name is Kyle Kaniza. I've also been working at the shelter for around two years as a manager on the floor. Probably one of the biggest changes would be that we um, accept people now or whatever wherever they're coming from and whatever point they're at and facing their addiction. And that means like there are people under the influence a lot of the time. I guess the loneliness that people experience, the out of boredom actually, a lot of them would say yes. that they were bored during yes. the pandemic when there was nothing to do. We had no activities, there was nothing. Mm -hmm. And Especially. so they would just, because they were bored, they'd go join the other people out in the bush. And, yeah. um, but that's not, like it might have already been going on before, but for some people it just heightened the struggles that they face, maybe the trauma that they've faced in their past, and just finding another way to cope with their their own pain and suffering. Yeah, I know on the floor it, uh, it definitely makes for some busy days. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've had a few days now that have been multiple overdoses at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that can be frantic and scary. Um, but that also means people are using safely mm -hmm. enough. The fact that they're close enough to be resuscitated and we know where they are and they're using groups. Mm -hmm. um, but it makes a stressful day. 
um, and it can really wear on people. Um, and there's, there's all sorts of behavioral issues that come up with that too when people are under the influence, um, especially with alcohol. It can cause some, some real problems. I remember during one of our outbreaks when people were kind of forced to stay on property. Right. And it was cold outside and we had like multiple people trying to use throughout the building. That's been hard. Yes. The outbreaks were a different animal. <laughs> those were those were crazy times. That's when we kind of realized like, well maybe we need to have a safe place for them to be using because we can't stop their addiction. They can't Absolutely. stop their addiction. But how can we somehow reduce the amount of harm that they do to themselves or to anyone else and to the whole environment of the shelter? Yes. I guess one of the hard things about like helping our friends as they struggle with their addictions is um, like one thing would be that we see so much potential in them and um, that we want we want so much for them. Um, and for us, it's it's actually hard for us to really understand what they're going through. So to to try to walk alongside them and support them um, and then see them struggling, maybe um, relapsing a day or two or for a week, they disappear and, and when we want so much for them um, and it's hard for them to to really take those steps forward with, with when we feel like we're just also broken people trying to help them along. Right. I think you can get a sense for how challenging this has been for the shelter community and how challenging it is to live in these grace-based relationships of kindness, tolerance, and patience with people as we wait for them uh, to make changes to their heart and life, to align more with the way of Jesus. Annie, talk about some of the challenges that the shelters faced over the last year. I think one of the challenges is that we primarily exist to see progress, whether that's housing-related or life-related, um, and embracing this posture or this model, um, it slows down progress. Right. It slows down that move towards recovery if recovery is what someone is looking for. It, um, there we In some senses, we lose that key motivator to push towards that change for people in saying, Instead of you can come and access these services and you can come for a bed in the shelter and you can come to engage in programs, once you start making choices like that, yeah. um, instead we say you can do those things now and in that sense feel like we've lost that key motivator to those changes and so things are slower. Right. You've, the idea that the stick of, of being banned from the shelter for a week or whatever or the carrot of saying you can come if you can stay sober right? It feels like those things motivate recovery a lot faster because the stakes are clear and people are challenged to make better choices where in a more grace-based model, maybe instead of saying like, no, you can't unless, you're kind of saying, let me keep you safe while you do. That feels like we're not helping people move towards recovery as quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. And in all of the work that we do in the shelter, it can sometimes feel like the impact of having people who are actively under the influence means that conversations don't happen at the the pace or the right. schedule that we want them to. Or someone will, might miss a housing search yeah. or someone might miss 
blank, 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 that we all think are things yeah. that absolutely need to be done for that person, um, it, it slows things down. That, yeah. That's. I, I do sometimes think, though, because I was reflecting on this after we talked the other day, I sometimes wonder whether God is in as much of a hurry for things to change <laughs> as we are. Like, and I get it, right? You want people to change. You want that when somebody's making destructive choices, I want that to stop for their sake, for the people around them, and so on. But I, was, I thought about the verse in 2 Peter where it says, the Lord is not slow in keeping God's promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repent, to change their heart and their life. Peter says, we get impatient. We think, God, come on, God, hurry up. Make the change. Make it, make it different. Make it now. And Peter said, we feel like God is going slowly. But Peter's like, no, God's not going slowly. God is being patient, and it's okay to God if that journey takes time. And I think learning that patience is probably something that we can afford to, to embrace. What is another challenge? Um, I think another challenge that we've heard from staff and from some really core volunteers has been that the shelter is less of that safe place refuge for people who are endeavoring to be in active recovery. So because, as you mentioned earlier, someone could be here under the influence, and oftentimes is, that increases the temptation for people who are genuinely trying not to be. And so there is that sense of lost refuge. We're not the place that we used to be. Yeah. And that, yeah. and there, there has been grief and mourning around that loss. And, and that's true. That is, is true. true. That, that in recovery, they talk about watching your people, places, and things. This is no longer a place where you can be sure that you won't be confronted with the temptation to use. Though I think it's a bit deceptively true. Like, I think it's true that we were a refuge for the community of people who could actively engage in recovery. But I think there were a lot of people who could never engage with us, who could never have that relationship of kindness, tolerance, and patience because they couldn't meet that bar. And I think, and this is a sobering truth, it's hard to say and think about, but I think more people died under bridges because they couldn't access resources like our community than needed to. And so, yeah, we are not the refuge that we were. We're less of a refuge, though still a refuge, but we are a refuge now for everyone who comes not for the select few that can clear this moral bar, right? Right. Well, I think, and and I know, and one of the things that I know for some of our staff has haunted us is knowing that there are people who we had asked to leave because they were under the influence, and that person went on and shortly after passed away because they were using a loan, and the weight of that is real for us. What I want to keep uh, known, and as much as we have to keep talking about and reminding our team, we need to remember that the refuge was not intended to be the, the property. Right. The refuge was intended to be the place of belonging, uh, the relationships that we can have. And I would say we endeavored to do that now more than ever before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we talked about one more challenge. There's probably, Pro- probably million, the, but... the, ironically, probably the simplest, and that is the messiness of it. Yeah. It is sometimes hard to embrace this this posture because of how messy it is. It requires more work, more relationship, uh, more wisdom to be able to navigate the gray and abandon the black and white of rules to follow and consequences to black and white rules. We navigate the gray instead. Yeah, it's not always possible to be certain about what's right and wrong and clear about what the next step is, right? right? 
And that's the, I think, the reason that rules and discipline that, I mean, God still disciplines us and, and there is, are still standards of what it looks like to walk with Jesus. All that's true. But that sort of rule-based approach is so tantalizing to us, I think in part because it's so black and white. It's so clear. I know at every moment what's right and wrong, and I know exactly what to do if you violate those rules. But the sneaky thing about rules is they don't actually help people be better, right? In, right. If I, like in Romans, it says, Paul's kind of testifying and saying, I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law hadn't said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Paul says, like, it was actually the rule that made me sin more. Mm -hmm. And I think that is often happening, that, that the Bible is clear that the rules, rules don't make us more like Jesus. If they do anything, they make us more aware of what sins are possible and invites us to consider them for ourselves, right? <laughs> like, and I think that's been, that's true. Like if you think about parenting, it's really tempting to parent with a strong rules-based and disciplined approach, but it doesn't make our kids better. Parenting, for example, in, this, in a grace-based approach of kindness, tolerance, and patience opens up a space where God can change people's hearts and lives, like we've been talking about, I think in a much more dramatic way by the Spirit. Right. Yeah. We, um, because there's not only challenges, there are upsides to a harm reduction approach, this grace-based approach. We asked Kyle and Sylvia to talk about some of the upsides that they've experienced as the shelter has adopted this new approach and take, take a listen to what they said. I think it can really break down the barrier we had between staff and residents. There's definitely, there's a power dynamic there. Um, but when you're able to get on somebody's level and go out and sit with them while they're using to make sure they're safe, um, and encourage them to use safe practices. It can really break down that barrier um, and open up a world of possibilities. Like I've had people walk up to me and be like, hey, like I'm going down to use right now. I don't have anybody to do it with. Can you just come make sure I'm okay? And that's something obviously that never would have happened before. And I've had some of the deepest conversations with people opening up about their past lives, um, their regrets everything their goals um, while down using because it is it's, it's them they're not hiding anything from you anymore mm -hmm. which has been really special yeah and same with like intake or coaching conversations too like when um, people are more honest with us about what they're struggling with and we ask them openly like are you struggling with any addictions is there any way that we can support you um, and they realize that they can talk openly about that now with us. It has really just like broken down some of their walls. And I've had people say like, wow, I've never been able to talk to staff about this kind of stuff before. And it's, it's such a relief mm -hmm. that I can be honest about how I'm struggling because every day is a struggle. In the case of overdoses, people are way more comfortable in First of all, using in groups has been a big thing because if somebody does go down, then they have friends there, they have naloxone around and they can be revived. Um, another thing would be there's less shame in having paraphernalia, any needles, um, anything. Uh, before, again, it would have been a suspension if we found any of that, but now 
knowing that they can keep it in their locker and have clean supplies delivered to them all the time. I can't say for certain, but I would put money on the fact that a lot less people are reusing needles mm -hmm. um, and trying to practice safe use with not sharing needles, stuff like that. Um, trying to stay as clean using lies as possible. Um, and especially with the potency of the fentanyl that is going around today, it takes very little for you to overdose. And the fact that people are now more willing um, to be open with us about their use so we can keep them safe has been, has been really beneficial. In the past, we would isolate people mm -hmm. when those problems presented themselves. And that's not the time to be isolated. Uh, it opens up a whole door of opportunities yeah. for things to go wrong. If there's anything that I'd want somebody to understand about harm reduction, it would be that um, it's a struggle like any of us have struggles. We all struggle with something in our lives and like I've, I've been talking to my husband about this, like just trying to understand that I have sin in my life, we all have sin in our lives and all sin is the same. Like we all struggle with something and so the way that we in the past might have looked down on our friends with addictions um, is completely unfair to them and just letting, meeting them where they are, understanding, like seeing them with eyes of compassion and empathy, um, that's what we want people to know and understand about our friends. So there are benefits, there are upsides to this kind of grace-based based approach of living in kindness and tolerance and patience with people with whom we'd wanna see a change in their hearts and lives. Annie, what, what kind of people do we need to be to live into this in our relationships? I, I mean, I think the first is that we have to be people who embrace humility. Yeah. And the more that you have the privilege to get to know people's stories and to be invited into the truth of their stories, um, the, I think that the more humility is inevitable. Yeah. You can't help but you can't help but get to this place where you think, okay, if I actually endured the the loss and the grief trauma and the trauma and, and all of that, I have absolutely zero faith that I would have done any better yeah. at all. And the more that you know people, the more that that brings you to that place. Yeah. You can't help but to be there. I, I was talking early on in our sheltered life with a guy named Guy <laughs> uh, who was struggling with addiction. And at one point, Guy said to me, the only difference between you and me is one experience of pain and trauma beyond what you know how to cope with and one bad decision about how to cope with it. And it's true. You, you said to me when we were talking before that none of us would do any better. And the, you said, the reason I know that is because none of us are even able to cut sugar out of our lives. That's right. Like, so, <laughs> I mean, the, the idea that we would do any better facing these circumstances. And that's why in Romans, I won't read it, but the Apostle Paul says at one point, when you judge somebody else, you're only judging yourself because you're exactly the same as them, yeah. right? You would you would do the same thing in their shoes. And I think that kind of humility to say that isn't self-righteous, but that mm -hmm. says, I, I wouldn't have done any better and I would need someone to walk with me. So now I'm going to be that person for them. Right. Um, what's another one? Well, that is such a natural segue to the next because I think the other is this journey-based mentality mm -hmm. that as we get to know people and we journey with and I have to tell you, I have been more 
have felt more privileged to be engaged in people's stories in the last 14 years than I ever could have imagined because I need people in my journey in the same way that anybody else needs people in their journey. Yeah. And so as you're journeying together, it does become reciprocal. And and for things that I try to cut out of my life, uh, sin that I would love to chip away at, all of those things, some of the best learning and inspiration and uh, encouragement in that has come from people who journey the same, but they're, what they're trying to leave is just so much more visible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think part of the journey mentality is celebrating the little wins. Yeah. I, I was I was up for coffee with once with a guy named Jeff, who was a pothead, and while we were sitting there, he was trying to convince me to embrace marijuana. <laughs> and while we were sitting there, this guy named Andy came up. And Andy was living in the shelter. He was an alcoholic, and he had this real downcast face. And I said, Andy, what's the matter? And he said, I fell off the wagon last night. He said, I was in the bar and I was thinking I shouldn't be here. And the bartender put a beer in front of me and I thought I shouldn't drink that. And I did. And what a mess I've made of everything. And Jeff, they didn't know each other. Jeff said, Andy, had you ever had that thought before? And he said, which thought? Well, that I shouldn't be in a bar and I shouldn't drink that beer. And Andy was like, no, see, I knew better and I still did it. And Jeff was like, no, you knew better. You've come to the place in your journey where you can look at a beer and say, I shouldn't drink that. That is amazing. And he stood up and gave Andy a high five. And he said, that's growth. Yeah. What a journey mentality, yeah. right? That if we stick with each other, we can keep walking through the small victories all the way to the big ones. It's not recovery or fail. No. It's step by step, right? Yeah. Jesus, in Hebrews, Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. No matter what happens, you can count on me to be beside you on the journey, taking steps forward. Yeah. What's another one? Uh, I think another one is just even in our priorities. So in the way that we engage with people, um, when we put people first, then we begin to actually be people for one another in the way that we need people from yeah. one another, right? Instead of expecting that from other people because we need it, but not offering that yeah. to, to the people who need it from us. Yeah. Absolutely. I, Jesus in Matthew quotes this verse a couple of times in Matthew 9. He says, go learn what this means. I want mercy, not sacrifice. Yeah. The, Jesus says what, what actually is more important than you sticking to your religious scruples mm. is you extending mercy to other people. When faced with the choice between upholding your religious scruples or extending mercy to somebody, Jesus says always choose mercy. It's more important. It, yes. it matters more for the journey. Absolutely. And what's the last one? I mean, the last one, and we talked a bit about the messiness, but the embracing of messiness, yeah. that it requires, this requires us to do that, but for a purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Jeff is fond of quoting Proverbs 14, <laughs> 4, that says an empty stable stays clean, but there's no income from an empty stable. We're interested in seeing God bring a harvest of right living, of human flourishing in relationship with Jesus. But in order to do that, you have to put up with the mess. You have to be willing to walk through the messiness of stuff. Yeah. Um, and people's messiness, that once you engage in that, it also gives you license yeah. to be real about your own, yeah. right? Absolutely. That messiness. And that's kind of it, right? That's the invitation is to say, we're all walking with people and people are walking with us, but we're all walking with people whose lives we wish were different. And the question is, how am I going to approach those relationships? If you have a child who says, I'm coming home for Christmas from university and I'm going to bring my partner with me, is it going to be you can't stay in the same room if you stay in our house? Or is it going to be 
choosing relationship, right? Those when, if you have a child who comes out to you and those aren't your own values, are you going to say, you know, impose discipline to try and scare them straight, literally? Or are you going to embrace a grace-based environment of kindness, tolerance, and patience as you walk together towards the life that Jesus has for both of you? This is the question over and over again. And Jesus, I think, is inviting us into the posture of God, which is one of kindness, tolerance, and patience as we walk with each other and all are experiencing a change of heart and life. Let's pray. God, thank you for the work that you want to do in us, that you never give up on us, that you came in the form of Jesus to be with us as we're celebrating in this Christmas season because you wanted to show us your kindness and tolerance and patience and walk with us as we change our heart and life by your spirit so that we look more and more like Jesus. Would you teach us to love others the way you have loved us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.